Michelle Bachelet has constantly been ranked among the world's most influential women ever since she became Chile's first female president in 2006. Her fight against sexism and for women's rights led to her serving in the UN as the first Undersecretary General and Executive Director of UN Women after her presidential term finished in 2010. Bachelet was tasked with leading, supporting and coordinating work on gender equality and women's empowerment at global, regional and country levels. Three years later, she returned to her homeland when she was again elected president. Following her second presidential term, Bachelet took on a responsibility many consider one of the most complex in international diplomacy, serving as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. It means she bears responsibility for promoting and protecting human rights guaranteed under international law. Her four-year mandate ends on August 31st. So what legacy is Bachelet leaving behind? Has she failed or succeeded as the world's leading human rights advocate? The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, talks to Al Jazeera. Michelle Bachelet, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Hi, Commissioner. This is going to be an opportunity for us to talk about politics and human rights globally. But let me start by asking you about your controversial visit to China. Human rights organizations said that you were too soft on the Chinese government on the very issue of the alleged atrocities committed against the Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang region. How do you respond to those accusations? Well, first of all, some people have said that it has been a mistake, the visit, that I disagree with that, because uh, I was able to raise human rights issues directly with China's uh, most senior government officials, and it was the first time in 17 years uh, for a UN human rights chief. So um, knowing that access to victims and civil society on the ground would be limited, I also, before I went to China, met several uh, former detainees and, and, and families of victims outside the country, but also many members of civil society. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, you have to engage with member states and you have to listen and you have to speak and you have to raise all the concerns. And I did raise all the concerns, as I explained in my, in my press statement. And as you know, at the meantime, we have been working an assessment on the situation in Xinjiang. And, and that's the, the next step. The, the general consensus, High Commissioner, among the human rights organizations which have been tracking the issue of the Uyghurs, this is exactly what they have been saying. They're saying that the Chinese government has been committing crimes against humanity, which include detaining more than a million Uyghurs in camps, subjecting them to torture, sterilization and forced labor. Now, when they listen to you making that statement uh, in China, there was this line about you expressing concern about the lack of independent judicial oversight in Xinjiang. And they said, this is not what we wanted the High Commissioner to say. We wanted the High Commissioner to tell the Chinese that it's about time to stop the persecution of the Uyghurs. Well, the first thing I have to say, it was not an investigative visit. It was a 
former visit, country visit, where I had the, the possibility to meet with many officials <coughs> at the different level with many ministers and with all of them, with all of them, we raised all the concerns on the violation of human rights that we have received allegations from that. And we have raised particular issues <coughs> in terms of, <coughs> of uh, the, 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 the persecution of, of people because of uh, particular minorities or religion grounds, uh, the uh, arbitrary detentions, uh, the, the, the allegations on ill treatment and torture. And of course, we have mentioned that these kind of things are against uh, the international human rights law and that it, it cannot, Kind of continue, so uh, I mean, it has to be stopped. But we we had that opportunity to raise all those issues with them. But also, even we had the opportunity to discuss with the police chief in Xinjiang, and at that time, he has these police files uh, come in 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 knowledge to everyone, and we raised that issue with them, and then they. Uh, promise to look at it and to come back with an answer. So I think it was an opportunity to, to, to be able to raise all those concerns directly to the government authorities that very few people have that possibility. I, I do understand when you say this was not an investigation, but rather direct discussions with the Chinese officials. But don't you see at the same time that this is something that could cost you your credibility, High Commissioner? Well, my credibility is related to what I think I have to do. And I have to do is to engage with the government, with civil society, and to do whatever is needed to done to ensure that human rights are protected and respected. And when we believe that that is not what is happening, to discuss and, and to look a, a follow-up and look forward how we really can uh, correct, uh, they can correct these things from happening and, and they can take responsibility for the things that have been happening. So explain to us why is it taking that long to release the report on the alleged atrocities in the Xinjiang uh, region? Well, as you are aware, in early March, we reached an agreement with the government of China for a visit to the country. So this is something we, I, we wanted to prioritize because it was important, as I said before, to visit the country, to engage with the authorities and senior officials on human rights issues and directly raise the concerns with them. Following my visit to China, the report continued to be reviewed and finalized. Are we likely to see the report published by the end of this month, for example? Well, as I said today earlier, we are working on it. I had uh, fully intended for it to be released before the end of my mandate, and we're trying very hard to do that. Now we have received uh, substantial input from the government and that we will need to carefully review because this is standard procedures. Every time we share a report or findings or assessment with any government, we give them time to give us a factual comments. And then we uh, identify if those factual comments uh, uh, needs to be included or not, or needs to be reviewed mm -hmm. to see if all those comments really uh, um, can um, bring different perspective on some of the issues. And we do this with all governments of the world. Has China been using its political influence to bury the report? I have to say I have received pressures to public and not to public, but from every side. And, but I have to say, uh, any decision and anything that will happen, it will never, if I will not publish or publish uh, um, uh, due to any such pressure, I will never do something like that, I can assure you. Pressures will not affect my decisions. Hi, Commissioner, when you get a letters from 40 countries 
asking you not to publish the report. What was your feeling? You are the one who is mandated to protect and promote human rights globally, and you're having 40 countries telling you, you know what? Don't publish that report about the alleged atrocities and the persecution of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang region. Well, I have received that letter, but I have received many, many other letters from many other countries and NGO asking me to publish. So I have understand that uh, they are trying to press us to do something, and we are going to do the things that we believe it's on our human rights perspective that, to do the right thing. Could you share with us some of the findings uh, which are going to be featured in the report? Well, I have to say it's the same kind of uh, findings that uh, we uh, raised with, uh, with the authorities, but of course this will be uh, more deep uh, in terms of the analysis. Uh, it's about patterns of human rights violations, including reports of arbitrary detention and treatment. And, 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 and we will, in the, in the report, it will go much more deeper on those with much more details and interviews of people who have been the victims of this situation. Uh, I've been going through some of the international backlash against the visit, the trip to China, some of the statements made by your colleagues, human rights activists, human rights watch about what they were expecting to happen. Do you feel a sense of bitterness about the, uh, the potential for this particular visit to overshadow the entire legacy of Michelle Bachelet? Well, I think it would be completely unfair, not for me, but for the whole office, to focus only on China to understand what the office has been doing the last four years, because we have been caring for so many issues on the whole world. And this is exactly what we're going to do uh, during the uh, interview. We, we, let's move on to do different topics now. Do you support the growing cause uh, among many human rights activists for Russian officials to be persecuted for uh, war crimes in the Ukraine? Well, it's not for us to define uh, if there are war crimes or not. We have, every time we have discussed about Ukraine and we have informed about what we have found on the ground, because as you probably know, we are there with a special mission since 2014, um, looking at the monitoring and reporting of the situation in Ukraine. Uh, and we have also uh, informed and, and uh, publicly and inform the Security Council and everyone which our findings are. Uh, until now, I would say, well, you know, yesterday it marked six months since the Russia's armed attack, a, six, a terrible, terrifying month for the people of Ukraine. 6.8 million people have to, uh, to flee their country and much more are internally displaced. Millions, uh, and we have also documented at least uh, more than... 5,700 and something civilians killed and seven, almost 7,900 injured, among them 1,000 children. So uh, I think that it has been terrible for the people, for the civilians there. We are also really concerned about, um, about the, the uh, I would say, the situation of prisoners of war. So I've been uh, calling on the Russian president to halt harm attack against Ukraine. And I think that even though both parties uh, must respect at all times and in all circumstances, international human rights law and humanitarian law, mm -hmm. it is for the courts to define if there are war crimes or crimes against humanity. So it is it's not for us to define that. But we have said, we have said though, that many of the issues that we have been informed that is happening on the ground may amount 
for criminal uh, for war crimes. Uh, you know, I know that it boils down to due process, thorough investigation, and jurisdiction, and that is ultimately for the committees, either appointed by the United Nations Human Rights Council or for the jurisdiction of the ICC to look into those evidences in the near future. But the general sentiment among people that. This is something that shows no signs of abating. The war continues and there needs to be strong action to prevent something similar to this to happen in the near future because the fallout from this crisis in particular is affecting billions all over the world. Well, yes, and that's why we have been saying, we have been insisting uh, that, that we need accountability. And that all perpetrators of all human rights violations and war crime needs to be brought to justice and they need to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. So because, we, and, and, and that we have said that many serious violations that we have documented may amount to war crimes. And they need, I mean, and the ones who have done this need to be held accountable. All right. Extraordinary times all over the world when we go now further to the Sahel region, sub-Saharan Africa. What we've seen recently is a surge in authoritarian regimes, military coups in Mali, Guinea and Burkina Faso. How concerned are you about those military coups which seem to be now reversing democratic gains that took many decades to build and accomplish? Very concerned. Uh, and, um, and in the case of Burkina Faso, for example, I went there in December and I could see the fragile situation. And I even asked uh, my colleagues there, uh, even the National Commission for Human Rights, do you think it's possible a coup d'etat to happen here? And I was told, no way, no possibility. But I was looking at how fragile the situation was, politically speaking, and of course, because in the Sahel and in Burkina and Niger, you see these terrible conjunctions of very difficult factors in terms of high insecurity problem with armed groups killing people um, and, and, and the government's not being able to really uh, solve the security situation, mm -hmm. linked to poverty, high levels of poverty, linked to um, climate change, droughts, and, 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 and of course, conflict between, between herders and farmers. So you see all these really difficult situation and particularly in the triple border between Niger, Burkina and Mali. So yes, and, and unfortunately, less than one month later, we had a coup d'etat. So uh, I think one of the things that is really important to try to support governments that have been democratically elected mm -hmm. to be able to find solutions uh, to these really difficult problems and challenges that are not easy to solve. And one of the things is, I guess, that you could see in Niger when we were there, is that of course there was an opposition to the government, but the opposition understood that there was problems for all of them and they needed to respond all together to these really difficult challenges. Tens of thousands of people killed in Ethiopia, tens of thousands displaced and hundreds of thousands facing starvation, we're talking about violence in many places, particularly in Oromia and Benishengul Gumuz and also in Tigray. And, and people are saying it's because of the international inaction and lack of, and because of the prevailing impunity that is allowing for such atrocities to happen again and again. 
Well, yes, uh, you're right. I have heard from uh, an academician saying that more people have died in Tigray and Ethiopia than even in Ukraine. And unfortunately, I would say the international community has not been paying as much attention as it should to, to Tigray or to, 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 to Oroma and Afar region as well. And I'm really alarmed because after some period of time that we thought that was like a peace talks and that these issues could be, could, we will come into a peace agreement and sort of a transition, a political transition that could resolve the political issue. Because of course, now we have dealing with military, military strategies, but I don't think the solution is a military solution. Unfortunately, we have seen resumption of hostilities in northern Tigray the last days, and, and I, civilians have suffered so much, and, and this will only exacerbate the suffering of Ethiopians already in desperate need. And as you remember, I think it's a, it's a real a big number. Uh, I don't know if it's 22 million people, if I'm not wrong, who, who are suffering from food insecurity and the risk of famine. Mm -hmm. So really, really, uh, we, have that, we have implored the Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front to work to de-escalate the situation and immediately cease hostility. But you're right. I feel that the international community has stopped paying attention and these have not been helpful. I think the international community should give more attention to the Ethiopia situation to help change the situation and stop the violence from happening. In Latin America, more journalists targeted in Mexico and many other countries. Yes, unfortunately, the world is not getting much better, if I may say, in terms of human rights. But, but there, the situations are not comparable. They're different situations. So you can have... In Mexico, you have a long-standing history of people who disappeared, calculated 100,000 that have been disappeared, and there has been a lot of impunity on, on these issues. And I hope that uh, the governments make uh, even bigger efforts to try to find out the truth of what happened in, uh, in, in, in many of these cases, the 100,000 people disappear, that they can identify the more than 50,000 remains they, they had, and that the, that the truth can help the suffering and stop the grievances of so many families that don't know what happened to their loving ones. And, and I hope, and we, as an office, we have been working there, trying to support uh, many cases, the, that the cases of the 33 students that uh, disappear and many other ones. And, and, and we hope that all efforts are done so uh, people can have, I would say, the healing that they need to know the truth, to know the whereabouts. And to and, the, and and to to just to be able to and also to be able to, no impunity for this violence, so we 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 could be able to stop it. We're really concerned. Uh, Twelve journalists have been killed in in in, in the first uh, period of 2022. That's mm -hmm. too much, and, and and we are insisting the government they need to strengthen the protection mechanism for human rights defenders and journalists as well. You made a visit to Afghanistan. You described the situation there as the darkest moments in a generation for the Afghan people. Uh, do you believe that women of Afghanistan were somehow abandoned by the international community? I had the opportunity to speak with those women there. It was a really, I would say, very significant for me to hear them. 
to listen to them that they said, look, please speak on behalf of us. But the truth is, if you are going to speak with the Taliban authorities, convey to them that we want to speak with them to explain why we women in Afghanistan can be part of the solution of the challenges that Afghanistan is living. And at that time, we were promised that women, girls would go back to school uh, and, and, and the secondary school and so on, and that didn't happen. So I'm really concerned about that because, of course, uh, there has been a denial of education uh, and that violates the rights of women and girls and jeopardizes the country's future. Women are not allowed to go to work, uh, and I mean, or very with a lot of difficulties. And, and I believe that it, during the last session of the Human Rights Council, we, 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 we had a strong resolution on, on, on on women in Afghanistan, and all countries mentioned that um, Afghanistan was still a priority. But I have to say, I have the impression that because of the war in Ukraine, many other issues became more less visible. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that's why I've been calling every time at the Human Rights Council and all my conversation with member states that uh, it's true, Ukraine, the, the war in Ukraine is terrible, but we don't, we cannot forget the situation of so many countries, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Myanmar, etc., that people are really suffering big violations of their human rights. All right, now uh, let, let's move on to uh, climate change, which is part of the uh, human rights. In many countries, you have the prolonged cycles of drought, you have lack of water, uh, which is now destabilizing communities and has the potential to create uh, conflicts in the Amazon, in the Sahel uh, region. Is it too late for us to tackle the ramifications of the climate change? Well, I think it's essential. And usually what you see is that people can understand climate change, but don't see the human rights impact on it. And it really impacts. Impacts. You have already mentioned a lot of examples on that, and I have seen it on the, the ground as well. And, uh, and unfortunately, as well, what happens in many of these issues is that the most, uh, the most, uh, the, the, this issue is, is bad in itself, but it also disproportionately affects the most vulnerable and affects much more the poor people, the women and children, the people living with disabilities, older people, people on the move, IDPs, refugees, uh, migrants, and also, of course, LGBTI communities, not because they have a particular situation that they're more affected, but because they have been chronically marginalized and discriminated. Mm -hmm. So they have less access usually to services, to possibility to respond, etc. So I think it's key that we walk the talk. I mean, many people signed, and I myself signed the Paris Agreement when I was in office, but now we need to see concrete results. We need to see uh, that the commitment, may, it's, it's, it's a reality to transform this situation and to ensure that, uh, and to take all the adaptation and mitigation measures that can really be, uh, I would say, diminish the emissions, because otherwise it will be a source not only of a famine because of all the agricultural consequences, but also of conflict, because you see there's today, it's, happening. it's not a problem of the future. Today, in places because of the scarcity of water or land, there is 
terrible conflicts and people communities are killing themselves between herders and farmers. But also many people, because, and I was just in Bangladesh, and Bangladesh is another country where you see the results of climate change, and many people have to leave their livelihoods to go somewhere else. And so you see fishermen that have to go inside the country and try to leave being them fishermen and not, not, not having skills on any other issue. So climate change, but not only climate change, we're speaking here, we, we tend to speak much more on triple planetary crisis because it's not only climate change, it's climate change plus pollution plus biodiversity loss. And we are trying to tackle all of those things and we need, we need that countries really step up with all the efforts to combat this. Uh, High Commissioner, in, in very few words, if you don't mind, uh, this is something which is intriguing me. You said that you're not seeking a second term. The, 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 the post of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, in theory, should be one of the most interesting, attractive jobs that someone would be looking forward to have. Nearly all of your predecessors uh, didn't want to stay on for a second term. Is it because most of the countries now are thin-skinned when it comes to your reports, what you have to tell them behind closed doors as far as human rights violations are concerned? Well, but that's, that's independently if you renew your mandate or not. I mean, no country, and I'm not saying only the countries of the South, all countries, especially in the North and, and, and Western countries, they never like to be quoted, mentioned, or reports that say that there are problems or issues. And I understand that there's no country that's perfect. I mean, every country has human rights issues. No, I think there are many re different reasons why people do not want to continue in another term. The sense from people who believe that, from personal reasons, to people who believe that uh, all, these, all these positions need to have, um, if I would say, renewal, so that new people come with new perspective, learning from their predecessors, but putting its own prior priorities or, or I would say ways to see how, how you can have better outcomes and better, better results. High Commissioner, you're the first woman to lead Chile. You were also executive director of UN Women. Could you give us an idea about your next move? No, I have no idea. I will go back to my country. I will try to be helpful, useful there. And if I'm needed somewhere else, not for a position, but to help in certain things, I will do that. Michelle Batchelet, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you so much. <laughs>